If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name's uh, Joe. I'm one of the pastors here at Central City. In college, uh, I had a, a friend whose name is Chris who got really fed up with God. I don't know if you've ever gotten fed up with God uh, before, uh, but Chris did. And uh, he was just one of those really courageous Christians who instead of just, he just insisted on being honest with God, regardless of what he was thinking or feeling. So he decided that, that, that God should show up in his life and speak to him audibly, like the voice of God in his life. He wanted to hear the actual, like, God come and say real words, I'm assuming in English, to him, okay? And so he began this experiment where he said, he told God, just as simple as he could, he said, God, uh, you have one week to come and speak to me audibly or else. Or else what would be my question, but this isn't my story. So I had heard about this experiment, and, and, and I was wondering how it was going. So I went, and I, I, I found him, and, I, and I, 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 was, I was just really curious. I was wondering, like, what if God actually came and spoke to him, you know? Like, what if all it took was the courage to stand before God and insist on a sign, you know, some sort of proof? Well, about a day before this uh, deadline that he had given God, I asked him, Has, had God showed up? And, and his immediate response was no. I could kind of uh, sense in his voice this sense of desperation, and he seemed a little defeated. But then he went on to say that he realized that maybe it wasn't such a good idea to try and control how God interacted with him. And so, so I, you know, trying to encourage him, was like, well, there you go. God kind of showed up. He taught you something, which is kind of like God speaking to us, right? Like you learn something from your experience with God. And he smiled at me, but you could tell that it was just one of those smiles like, yeah, yeah, but it's not what I was looking for. And so he seemed a little discouraged. So what, what do you think happened to Chris with this experience? Did, did he leave the faith? Did his doubts and questions and experiments push him farther from God? Well, would it surprise you to know that now Chris is in full-time ministry and that two years ago, actually, he planted a church in Fort Wayne, and hundreds of people now attend that church, and that he's even helping other people plant churches, including this one. He was uh, Alyssa and I's coach during the early stages of the church plant. So that's, would that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me. As Paul talked about last week, doubt is inevitable. And if approached the right way, doubt doesn't disqualify us from faith. In fact, God can use doubts and difficult situations where we question our faith um, to help us grow in ways that we never thought possible. So when I think of passages that have to do with uh, these sort of messy situations of doubt, one of the ones that comes to mind is Peter walking on water. I don't know if you're familiar with this passage, but I want to read the passage for you uh, because it's going to help us uh, get some vocabulary around some of the images to better understand how God hopes to use doubt for our benefit. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 14, uh, 22 to 31. You can also follow along in the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, we have an event in there, and you can follow along on there. Uh, while you're doing that, um, I want to show you, uh, I'm kind of a visual learner, so instead of having the words of this passage on the screen, I'm just going to show you the Sea of Galilee. Now, listen, I had the chance to visit the Holy Land a while ago. I didn't take this photo because it, that's better than I can do. Um, but this is an actual picture of the Sea of Galilee. So I just want you to imagine they're on the Sea of Galilee. It's this, just FYI, sea was a mistranslation. It's really just a lake. 
and um, that's really what it is, the Lake of Galilee, which doesn't sound nearly as cool, but it's just this big lake, and they were out there fishing where this scene takes place. So imagine that you're there. Um, you can feel the Galilean breeze and the water uh, as it, it hits against the boat, and you're in the middle of this little fishing boat getting pushed by the wind and the waves, and here's the passage, Matthew 14, 22 to 31. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside to, by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? You of little faith, why did you doubt? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I love this story because it paints this really vivid picture of what I think faith and doubt is really all about. And I love Peter in this story because he's such a clumsy disciple. I mean, who always seems to be stumbling into these really messy situations and not always coming out very victorious. And here they are, they're sitting on this boat and coming up on the water is what appears to be this ghost. And you can imagine what it'd be like the water to wake up after a poor night of sleep on a rocking boat and you see something coming towards you. And I mean, like it would, it, you, it would be a little frightening. And so uh, they jump up and they, they, they yell like, what is going on? But as is common, anytime people become afraid when God shows up in their life, um, Jesus says to them very plainly, take courage, it is me. And then Peter, with permission of Jesus, he steps out of the boat and onto the water. So faith in Jesus pushes him out of the boat. But then, after only a couple of steps, he looks and he sees the wind and the waves and fear overtakes him. And he immediately starts to sink. And he almost gets swallowed up by doubt. But think about this. Faith takes him out of the boat. So faith takes us from this place of security to a place of risk, right? This is what it means to walk by faith, to take a step of faith. Faith moves us from a place of security to a place of risk. And doubt takes that risk and makes it downright dangerous. Let me put it this way. Peter would not have been in danger because of his doubt if he hadn't first left the safety of the boat because of his faith. Faith pushes us into risky situations, places that can easily become dangerous, places that can easily swallow us up. Faith makes us vulnerable. And I'm going to argue, in fact, it's the basic assumption of everything that I'm sharing today, that God can use that vulnerable place that faith puts us in, in really profound ways. And by extension, because of that, doubt in these places of faith can be good. It can be difficult, it can be scary, um, it can even, like I said, dangerous, but I think ultimately it can be used for good. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of benefits to doubt, um, but as I've mauled over this passage, there are three things that I think benefits that we get from doubt that I want to talk with you today. I found these uh, benefits and lessons in this passage as well as my own story. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about this or not, but I think there are actual benefits to doubt, and here's, here's three of them. The first one is this, humility. Think about the story of Peter. I can't help but imagine what it would have been like to be one of the disciples who were watching from the boat. 
At this point, Peter had set himself apart as one of the leaders in the early church. I mean, amongst the disciples, he was clearly had set himself apart as one of the leaders. And in fact, just two chapters later in this book, Jesus announces to them all that Peter would be the leader of the church. And so here is this leader, this person who is supposed to inspire confidence. And he he almost does, doesn't he? he? He's the only one who's courageous enough to say, hey, Jesus, if that's you, let me walk on water too, which is kind of a bold thing to ask of. God, don't you think? He, but he does, he, and he steps out, and yet after only a few steps of faith, he's drowning. I mean, like, imagine how humiliating that would have been. Imagine the disciples watching from the boat. One second, they're like cheering. You're like, go, 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 go. Peter, you've got it. Plop, and they go silent, you know? Like, and they get that sort of uncomfortable feeling when you're watching someone on stage really bomb. Do you ever, do you ever get embarrassed for other people? Oh, I hope, I hope I never make you feel embarrassed, but I probably will. <laughs> That's what's happening right now. The disciples are watching and Peter just sinks. Doubt, especially in a person of faith, especially a faith leader. Humiliating. The ever confident, the ever proud, the oh, I can do it all by myself attitude that we see in Peter and we see in a lot of other people uh, just got swallowed up by the sea. I have to be honest with you though, as, as a leader, there was a, a season in my life where I... I you know, I, I hung on to my teenage years for a really long time, and there was a long season in my life where I just assumed I had all the answers, and I knew exactly what should, what should happen and how it should work, and I, I know that's probably hard for some of you to imagine, but I was like that, and I'm going to be honest with you, I'm the, I don't know if this, I, hopefully this is a sign of maturity, but the older I get, I'm just like, I'm sure of less and less, but you know the stuff that I am sure of, I hold on to tighter and tighter. And so I'm like, I'm not a very good Peter. I'm not always that confident or always that courageous. And I have a lot of doubts and questions. And it has made me, uh, I hope it's making me more and more humble. And in today's day and age, this is really important because we live in an information age. More than ever, we have access to any amount of information you want from any particular bias you want. Like you can, whatever you currently believe, you can find the evidence to support it with very little work like very quick Google searches. And so we have all of this information, all of this confirmation bias. And it's scary to think that when we walk by faith, we have to leave that kind of security behind where we're saying, I don't necessarily have all the answers. I might not all have it all figured out. I might not have all the answers. I might not always be right. I might have some doubts and questions. Do you imagine in the middle of a Facebook argument, someone was like, well, you know, I'm just not sure. Have you ever seen anyone say that before? I very rarely see someone say that in the middle of a Facebook argument. Am I preaching just to myself here today, or do you guys know what I'm talking about? We're just like, you're arguing about something, he's like, you know what, to be honest with you, I just don't know. You don't see that very often. A couple years ago, I ran across this book that's called uh, What We Believe But Cannot Prove. It's a fascinating book. Um, it's an experiment that started online, and the general idea was to explore realities that are on the edge of human understanding. And so what they did is they get a group of world's best scientists together and engage them in a variety of conversations. Well, at one of their meetings, they asked a question that just really took off, and it's this question, what is the one thing you believe that you can't prove? So now remember, they're not asking this question to theologians or to, to, to pastors. They're asking the world's best scientists. What do you believe that you can't prove? So they got so many responses, they put all of the responses into these, each chapter is a different essay, a different response from a different scientist, and they turn into a book. And, and this book is just filled with it. Beliefs that world's leading scientists believe but can't prove. 
And do you know what I found about this book so interesting? First, there were 109 different scientists answering this question, including Richard Dawkins, by the way, who Paul referenced last week, if you were here, who wrote the book, The God Delusion. 109 of the world's greatest minds of our age believe in things they can't prove, things they believe, but they're just not so sure about. And some answer this question with paragraphs and others in pages, but they all had an answer. And, and what's interesting is they all had a different answer. Each answer was unique. So they all believe different things they can't prove. And there was one that was really interesting. is from this guy by the name of Seth Lloyd. Now, he's a quantum mechanical engineer and a professor at MIT. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds impressive. This is what he said. I believe in science. I'll just pause there for a second. His answer to the question of things he takes by faith, things he can't prove, things that are because he can't prove vulnerable to doubt, is science itself, he explains. Unlike mathematical theorems, scientific results can't be proved. They can only be tested again and again until only a fool would refuse to believe them, which for the record, many fools still refuse, but that's beside the point. What I find interesting though is this. As soon as you leave the realm of numbers, math, mathematical proofs, you're entering into a realm of faith and doubt. And even science at its heart is is this thing that you take by faith. You can't ultimately prove one thing over and over. All you could do is rest, is test something over and over again to the point that you would be silly not to believe it. This is how Richard Dawkins put it in the introduction to this book. He says, it would be entirely wrong to suggest that science is something that, that knows everything already. Science proceeds by having hunches, by making guesses, by having hypothesis, sometimes inspired by poetic thoughts, and then science goes about trying to demonstrate it experimentally and observationally. In other words, like this sense of wonder and imagination is what fuels science. We have these questions and we don't, we don't have all the answers. The same thing is true for faith. Doubt and approaching it from a place of humility and saying, I don't have the answers. I want to ask the right questions. I want to, I want to explore deeper can actually increase your faith, but it takes humility to go there. The second thing that doubt has taught me is dependence. Let's jump back to the story of uh, Peter. He's jumped out of the boat. He's become overwhelmed with fear. And because of the waves, he starts to drown. And what does he do? What does he say? The end of verse 30, he cries out, Lord, save me. You know, I'm not impressed with Christians who can walk on water. I'm impressed with Christians who are humble and desperate enough to cry out to God like that. And you know what? I think that's exactly where God wants us. He wants us to be so desperately in need of God's divine power. Disciples in the moat might have been laughing at Peter, and Peter might have been scared out of his mind. But just as Peter cries out those three simple words, Lord, save me, I wonder if Jesus isn't thinking to himself, that's what I've been waiting for. In that moment, Jesus has Peter right where he wants him. And I can't tell you the number of times in my own life where I've laid in bed or I've sat up in the middle of the night because I can't sleep, feeling like my life is just getting swallowed up by everything around me. That because of previous steps of faith, I've gotten myself in over my head and I don't know what to do and I don't know how to. And all I can say is, Lord, I can't do this anymore. Lord, I'm lost. Lord, I don't understand. Friends, I've found the most powerful prayers I can ever offer are often less than five words. Lord, help me. Lord, save me. Have you ever prayed like that? I want you to know that God is not uncomfortable with your doubt or your fears or your mess. In fact, this reminds me of a story in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus runs across this uh, man who has a son who needs healed. And it says this, it says, Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you hear that? 
Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And do you know what Jesus did next? He responded to the guy, he said, nope, sorry, not good enough. You know, like if you get this whole faith thing figured out, then I could probably do something. Do you think Jesus, if you're not familiar with Jesus, um, he didn't say that? Is, that? is that what he said to Peter when Peter was drowning? He was like, well, you know, you shouldn't have doubted. <laughs> Tough luck, Peter. Maybe next time you won't give into those darn fears of yours. No, the man who struggled with unbelief, Jesus immediately healed his son. And the same with Peter. Jesus immediately pulled him out of the water. Jesus is not uncomfortable with your doubt. And Jesus won't leave you drowning in it. Instead, doubt is meant to push us further into the conversation. It's meant to take us, take us to make us care about stuff even more. It's meant to inspire us to dig deeper and to think harder and to pray longer and to cry out louder. Doubt leaves us vulnerable and dependent desperate for God. And I found that after a season of doubt, my faith becomes real. And that the faith I had before that season of doubt wasn't really faith at all. It it wasn't a childlike faith. I loved how Paul said this last week. It wasn't a childlike faith. It was a childish faith. It was immature, untested. Now, that kind of growth, of course, takes time. So not only does doubt, I think, help us experience humility and dependence, but the third one um, is that God doesn't always work on our schedule, which is why the last lesson I've learned from doubt is patience. Now, if you're anything like me, we want our uh, uh, problems solved overnight. Um, we are the now generation. In fact, one of my uh, favorite commercials is for NyQuil. Are you guys familiar with these commercials? It's like uh, when someone has a cold, it, it, this picture of these commercials is like, if you have a cold and if you take NyQuil, you'll sleep so well that like, you won't even be sick the next day. I, I, that has never been my experience. I actually am a fan of NyQuil, and I take it when I need to sleep and I've got a cold or whatever, but it is not an overnight cure. Like, it doesn't fix everything overnight, but that's what we want. Now, that's what we want in our faith and some of the other things in life, but people throughout Scripture, scripture have doubted God. They doubted whether it was God, whether it was God speaking to them, whether it was God who wanted them to do what, what they were asking to do. They doubted God so often that God got into the habit of providing proof just to hold a conversation with people. You can check this out for yourself over and over in Scripture. God would literally say, this is the sign I give to you so that you know it's me, time and time again. But typically, God would only uh, give kind of one of two signs. The first sign I like to call a Gideon sign. Now, if you're familiar with Gideon, Gideon is a character in the Old Testament. And I won't get into his story, but what you need to know is that God sent him on a mission, a very difficult one. And just like all the other people God sent on a mission, Gideon demanded a sign. He wanted proof, like he wanted to see it. He wanted to hear and make sure this is what he was supposed to be doing. So he had his doubts and he needed to know for sure. So God had him set up an altar and then miraculously, God lit that altar on fire right in front of Gideon. That's what I call a Gideon sign. It was immediate. It was tangible. It was obvious. It was as clear as day. In fact, Gideon is so lucky. He gets like multiple additional signs that are immediate, clear, right in front of his face, obvious signs um, uh, that God just puts right in his front. Now, my friend Chris, remember him? He wanted God to speak to him today. He wanted a Gideon sign, something that was immediate, right in front of his face, clear as day. So have you ever looked for proof like that? I have. But sadly, God doesn't always give us that kind of sign. In my experience, God usually gives us a sign like he gave Moses. Moses, another character in the Old Testament, gets a different kind of sign. 
God had a very similar conversation with Moses. He was going to send him on a, on a mission. And, and some of you probably even know what that mission was. He was going to deliver the people out of Egypt. But Moses requested a sign, as was typical. And God was going to provide him proof. But guess what kind of sign God gave Moses? You can find it in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. He says this, And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Right? So this is the sign. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So wait, Gideon gets a ball of fire. And Moses has to wait until the journey is over and ends up back on this mountain. I mean, compare the time frame between these two different signs. Gideon's was immediate, clear, and obvious. Moses, on the other hand, he would know that it was in fact God sending him when after leaving this mountain, he would go to Egypt, he would free the people, they would escape through the Red Sea and finally make it safe back to this mountain. And then he would know for sure that it was God who sent him. That's what I call Moses' son. In other words, Moses wouldn't even be sure until he's finished his mission and looks back at all that God had done. Gideon's sign was immediate. Moses' sign was cumulative, and he couldn't see it except by looking back over a long period of time. Now, which sign would you rather have? I mean, come on. Yeah, of course. I mean, ball of fire. First off, that's cool, okay? Second off, I mean, like, there's just, there wouldn't be any doubt. I want my doubts, and I want my fears, and I want my experience of God to be answered right now. So why? We have to ask the question, why would God typically give a Moses kind of sign instead of a Gideon sign? Well, hold on to that question. I want to jump back to Peter's story. I think we'll find the answer there. Uh, Peter's story has a very similar conversation that Moses and Gideon have with God, and he gets a sign to prove that it's him. So Peter and the disciples, they're, they're, they're on the boat, and, and the ghost is coming across the water. Remember that? And Jesus tells them not to fear. And, and then Peter asks him for a proof. He asks them for a sign. Very similar type of conversation. He says, well, if it's you, let me come out on the water with you so that I know that it's you. Peter wanted proof that it was Jesus. If it was really Jesus walking on water, then Peter, a follower of Jesus, would also be able to walk on water. So Jesus says, come. And Peter did, and he walked on water. Now talk about a sign. Talk about proof. Can you imagine? It was immediate, tangible, miraculous. Now forget what happens the rest of the story. Just imagine for a moment what it would be like to step onto the water. The water, cold, but somehow wet and solid at the same time. And the only thought going through Peter's was like, wow, this, this has to be the Son of God. Like, how could there be any room for any doubt when you're walking on water? Two steps later, doubt creeps back in, and he's no longer walking on water. He's tripped by doubt. This is why I think God prefers the Moses sign over the Gideon sign, because no matter what God shows you or what miracle you experience, it doesn't take long for us to get distracted or discouraged or to reason it away, or to find something to convince us that it wasn't what we thought it was. No matter what God gives you, no matter how many miraculous moments you experience, they don't last forever. Profound religious experiences come to an end. Worship services come to an end. The mission trip ends. The honeymoon period will come to an end every time. And eventually, it's going to require you to walk by faith, not by proof. And faith means that you'll always be vulnerable to doubt. But only after you've walked a long way will you be able to look back and say, wow, God, you were there every step of the way. 
We have an expression for that in English. You say hindsight's 2020. I was thinking about Chris's story, and so I want to touch base with him. And I sent him a message on Facebook a while back, and I asked him if he remembered this experiment he did with God, where he insisted on God showing up, and um, and and you know, kind of what happened after that. He told me that it was only a few days after he gave in and let God out of his deal that he ran across this complete stranger at church, a few days after his deal was up. Now, Chris didn't know much about this guy at church other than he was nice. Uh, he was a nice Latino man, and somehow this guy told Chris exactly what he needed to hear in that situation. It was just one of these sort of God experiences, right, where it's not God's voice showing up, but it's like some, you just, it's what you needed in that moment, and hopefully you've, you've experienced that, or maybe even right now is, is that moment for you. Um, and it gave him this sense of confidence and encouragement that he needed in that time of his life. And but it wasn't until the end of the conversation that Chris realized that this guy's was uh, this guy's name was guess what, Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> it's a true story. Chris said this about that encounter. He said it was as if God was saying to me in that moment, "I'll give you everything you need to trust me, but not more than you need." That's the point of faith. He went on to tell a story after story of times as he looked back on his life, like Moses would have had to do, where God showed up and used him to make a difference. He concluded by saying this. He says, I have countless other stories too, but all of them include just enough of what I need from God to trust him. Not too much, not too little, but just enough. By the time St. Peter died in AD 64, the church would have received the Holy Spirit. It would have spread throughout the Roman Empire and was well on to reaching every corner of the globe. Even under periods of intense persecution, thousands would come to follow Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. Miracles would be witnessed, lives would be changed, and the world would literally never be the same. Peter, through the course of his life, got to witness this movement spread from a group of clumsy disciples to a movement that would change the world and impact nearly every part of it. So I ask you, when do you think Peter had more confidence in God? When he walks on water for those few moments or when he looked back at the end of his life at all the things God had done in and through him? When it's all said and done, I think we all have to rely on a sign like God gave Moses. You'll know it's me when your journey is over and you look back at all that I did in and through you. Now, doubt can be hard, but if you keep with it, God can use seasons of doubt and seasons of faith to take you places that you never thought possible. So if I was to offer some application today, and it's one of the most important things I have to say when we're wrestling with doubt is this, um, don't shy away from it, lean into it, and stay in the conversation. Regardless of what you're going through or what you're struggling with or what it is that, that, that you're wrestling with, whether it's doubt or something else, just stay in the conversation. Don't run away. Continue to ask questions. Continue to spend time in prayer. Continue to wrestle with it and find community where, you, where it's safe to have those kinds of conversations. Join one of the small groups Alyssa mentioned earlier. I promise you I'm, I'm a part of both of them and they're both safe places for you to engage in honest conversation about your faith. Over the next two weeks, we're going to continue to talk about doubt. 
we had an opportunity for many of you to fill out a simple uh, survey and share your thoughts about doubt. And uh, we've had about uh, over 30 people respond to that already, and we're uh, pulling all of those results. We're going to actually use those, now that we're back from vacation, uh, to form them into the next conversation of the next two weeks. So until we read your guys' thoughts on doubt, we're, we don't even know what we're going to preach on the next two weeks, but we're going to try to address some of the major themes and, and topics around doubt. Um, so I encourage you, if you haven't filled that out, to take some time. You can find it at centralcity.co slash doubt. But join us for the next two weeks as we wrestle with some of the more specific areas where we're, we, we as a community are asking some big questions around what it means to follow God and uh, what it means to be a community that is uh, humble enough to follow God, desperate enough, and uh, is willing to be patient enough for God to work in our lives. I'm going to invite the band to come up as we continue to worship. Let's pray. God, we want to recognize your, your, your presence here. And Lord, you know what's going on in our hearts and our minds right now. You know what it is that we're absolutely terrified of in our life, what we've been trying to control, what we've been trying to handle on our own by sheer will or confidence, courage. Lord, we ask that you would put us, Lord, we ask that you would put us in a situation where we have to walk by faith, knowing that when we fail, you'll be there to pull us back up. Help us long for that embrace. Give us courage and patience to run the race so that years from now we can look back and see how you've worked and our confidence in you can increase. Holy Spirit, continue to minister to us here. Break into our hearts and our minds. Challenge us, encourage us, convict us. Whatever it is we need, meet us. It's your name we pray. And everyone said, Amen.